And as you're turning there, let me remind you of kind of where we are. We've done the first half or so of the Providence series, which covered God's providence over creation and over natural disasters and over sin and over death and over the womb and over many different things, really everything. And now for the second half of this series, we're going to be zeroing in on uh, God's sovereignty specifically over salvation, His providence over salvation itself. And um, Greg's going to read for us a, a, just a, a very uh, important text amongst many on this, on this topic, and then I'll ask Jerry to pray for us, and then we will jump in. Our plan is to give a little bit of a historical background to this debate, this discussion, and then get into how uh, this applies to our lives. Today is going to be more introductory to this whole topic of God's sovereignty and salvation, but we'll see how far we, we get. So, Greg, could you read for us? Yeah. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory." In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Oh, what a feast that is. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you, and uh, even as we hear and think about this incredible passage, what an amazing thing that you chose us before the foundations of this world, and that you did not leave us to our own devices, um, knowing that being dead in our transgressions and our sins, we, um, we would have just only chosen sin. And so thank you, Father, that uh, you adopted us into your family. Thank you that you have lavished your grace on us. And Lord, now that you are doing all things according to your tremendous and perfect purpose um, for your glory, and Lord, we would commit this time to you now. I pray that uh, this doctrine would be more than just um, something that we are theologically um, interested in or become more um, convinced of. I pray that it would also sink down to change the way we live, to give us a greater humility, um, a greater joy in the gospel, a greater love for our Lord Jesus, and a greater love for people who need the Savior. We commit this time to you and are very thankful um, that we can feast on this great topic in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, just to touch on a little bit of a historical background to this topic before we get into uh, some of the specifics, you can go back in church history all the way to St. Augustine and his debates with Pelagius about this issue. You can jump forward and you can see Martin Luther debating with Erasmus over similar kinds of issues about God's sovereignty and salvation. 
And then uh, you could sort of trace the historical development through George Whitfield debating with uh, John and Charles Wesley about this same issue, and, and on it goes. So this is certainly an issue, God's sovereignty and salvation, predestination, election, all these things, the five points of Calvinism, as they're often called, the tulip that we'll be looking at, T-U-L-I-P. These things are often considered this sort of endless debate in church history. And no doubt, if you've been around church for any amount of time, you've, you've heard about this discussion, you've probably been part of a discussion in, in these ways. Um, I spent uh, three years in Bible college at a college that was almost entirely Arminian. Almost every single one of my professors would have rejected the five points uh, of the tulip that I believe. And almost all my friends rejected them as well. So I spent three years surrounded by uh, the other side on this discussion. And I had many, many, many uh, great discussions with professors. I have to admit, sometimes my, my youthful arrogance got the best of me in certain moments, but I had a lot of great uh, professors who were very gracious to talk to me. Uh, I could name them, Dr. Reese and uh, Dr. Uh, Junker, Gunther Helmut Junker. What a great name. You can't guess what country he originated from. And uh, so Dr. Junker, were, these guys were very gracious to me as a 20, 21-year-old, and yet we would go back and forth on these things over and over. So I, I, I feel like I spent a good bit of time hearing the other side during those three years, and I was not in any way jostled in my assurance that these things are true. Um, any opening things? I know we're going to get into some more personal stuff. But any opening comments before we get into the history? I mean, it matters where we come down on this. One of the things we want to avoid is the, well, we'll just agree to disagree and act like it's not an important issue. I mean, these issues are in the Bible. God put them there. They're not there by accident. You know, it wasn't some, Satan didn't insert these in there to try to cause division in the church. Like, this is part of what God has revealed about his plan and about himself and about us and how we're saved. And so if we minimize this, we don't want to go further than scripture does, but if we treat this as though it's unimportant, then we're saying a large swath of the Bible is unimportant, and we're actually questioning God's wisdom and how he has put things together in Scripture for us. I mean, if, if we're going to go deep into the gospel, we have to wrestle with these things. We have to. Um, and again, there can be disagreement, like you said, with, you know, Whitfield and the Wesleys. Um, you know, at the end of the day, we want to affirm that you don't have to agree with us to, to be genuinely saved. Um, and I don't remember which one, one said this, but it was, uh, was it Whitfield? I think Whitfield had died and Wesley, like, I think spoke at his funeral and someone asked John Wesley after, you know, do you think you're really going to see uh, George Whitfield in heaven, Mr. Wesley. And his comment was no. And the guy was like, what? He was like, no, he's going to be so close to Jesus that I'm not going to be able to see him. And so the point was they had some, I've read some of their, their debates, a fierce disagreement, but they still affirmed the genuineness of salvation. Um, even though there was that disagreement to the point where Wesley could say, George Whitfield is going to be closer to Jesus than I am when we get there, uh, when we get to heaven. So, you know, let's keep that in perspective um, but it does matter. It does matter. I think our assurance, our hope, our strength, our foundation, if we are wrong on this, we are undercutting, I think, a lot of what God wants us to have to stand on. I think it matters because it's true, and I think it matters in our life. I just think that this doctrine, as much as anything, will produce a great humility and a joy, probably, but a humility when you just think of God choosing us even before the foundations of the world you say, there's no way we can take credit for anything. And when Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing, we just have to believe that that is exactly what he means. Everything that God does in us is for his glory, and we have to bring him glory with our lives. Otherwise, I think we've missed it. Now, we'll get into these later, I know, but I just, just as a prefatory sort of comment, 
sadly, and I, I think some of my time in Bible college, I would be one of the problems here. Me too. I think sometimes people come to believe these doctrines and they become arrogant in the way that they talk to other people about them. I know, I, we call it cage stage, mm -hmm. where you, you should be locked in a cage for the first couple years after you f figure these things out because you just want to convince everyone you've ever met. Like, you call everybody, texting everybody, you guys are wrong, this is true, and like what my pastor growing up used to teach is wrong. Like, you just, you want to, it's not good. So why is it that the doctrines should really create humility, but they often create more of, some, sometimes initially yeah. they can create an arrogance. 35 years in the cage stage, I was. <laughs> That's way too long to, to be in there. It is easy to slip in there. And, um, but I think a, a true, any sort of true understanding of this has got to bring humility. And we can't ever start to think, oh, wow, we've got the corner market on um, what's truly right here. And we believe so strongly that it's true. And I don't think oftentimes those who are um, more convinced of... Um, that it's not true. I don't believe oftentimes they go to Scripture to say it. It's just hard to understand. And so they say it's just not logical. And so I think what we believe here is to say, since it's all over Scripture, I remember the first time coming to um, understand it, our pastor was um, at, had us over for lunch. I had never even heard of the doctrine of election. And, I, you know, I'm 24, I'm in Bible college, and, uh, and he just had, had me over. I was sitting, I can remember where I was sitting, right behind the couch. And he mentioned that God chose us before the beginning of time. And I thought, how is this man so right on everything, such a great man? How did he fall off the turnip truck on this thing? How could it be? I remember when I chose Jesus, right? And I'm sure he didn't choose me. And man, it was, but it did not, it was amazing once you start seeing that in Scripture, it was everywhere, and it was so glorious, and it was so life-changing, it was so freeing, and it was incredibly humbling. But, uh, but you're right, Mark, we have to be really careful that um, even though we believe it's true, that we don't um, talk about it with the wrong attitude. Yeah, I would just say what I've often said before is, I think as J.F. Packer said, theology should lead to doxology. Like theology, if it doesn't, something's wrong, something's misfired. And certainly on a day like today, God is sovereign over salvation. Like if we don't leave here wanting, like we should be anxiously wanting to run over there and sing uh, with Ian. Uh, if, if not, something's wrong. I mean, gratitude, worship, praise should exude out of us when we realize it's nothing that we did. God in his sovereign mercy saved us and we deserve his wrath. I remember one time Grant, was in, it was in the last time we did Romans, and he was talking about the cross, and everything in me was just, I just want to go into the sanctuary and sing with Ian right now. I mean, just, it produces that uh, doxology, just exudes, and if it, if it doesn't exude today, oh, something's wrong. We, we, we've missed it totally. I mean, just deep thanksgiving, deep gratitude, deep praise and worship when we consider God is sovereign in salvation, which he is. One way to sort of Try to get our grapple, try to get a grappling around this. One very simple way to sort of summarize the whole watershed of the issue is how you answer these questions. So, uh, does God choose me because He knew I was going to choose Him in the future? That's Arminianism. Or does God choose me so that I choose Him? Do you, do you see the difference here? The question is this: We everyone agrees God chooses us because the Bible says so. Everyone also agrees we choose God because that's putting your faith in Jesus. Those are both taught in the Bible. No one should be doubting that God chooses us and that we choose God. The debate is how are those two things interconnected? Which one leads to the other one? You see? Because either my choosing God led God to choose me, and therefore the decisive turning point was me and my will, and God was lining up his will with mine, see? Or the other way is 
we were all choosing sin. We were all choosing death of our own free choice. We were also, we were free to choose what we wanted, but we wanted sin. And we wanted sin more than we wanted Christ. And it was God's intervention in my life, choosing me undeservedly, changing my heart, giving me new affections so that I willingly, freely, and necessarily choose him. And so the question is, how do you answer that? Did God choose me because he knew I was going to choose him? Or does God choose me as the cause of my choosing him or or so that uh, I choose him? Thoughts on that way of looking at it? Well, I mean, we, we have to go to Scripture to answer this. I mean, that's what we're going to do down the road. But one of, one of the things in this, um, I mean, I'm at the position I'm at, and I'll, I'll share more about this in a minute, but I'm at the position I'm at because Scripture led me there. Like, we, we have to subject all our philosophical assumptions and conclusions to the clear teaching of Scripture. Amen. Mm-hmm. Okay? Like, we, we, especially on this issue, we have to be very careful to say, Okay, I, I have ideas about how things are supposed to fit together, but I'm going to submit myself to Scripture, and if Scripture takes me a different direction, I'm going to submit to Scripture, even if that goes against how I've pieced this together before. Okay, um, I, I am absolutely convinced in the sovereignty of God and salvation because that's what Scripture clearly teaches. You know, not because it's logical, though it is, not because it makes philosophical sense, though it does. At the end of the day, Scripture is the definitive word on how we answer this question. Because this is a great question, like the the two sides here. This is absolutely essential, but where do we go? I mean, has God spoken about this, or does he leave it up to us to figure it out? God has spoken about this, uh, clearly in his word. God's word is the only thing that is theanustos, God-breathed. So we read scriptures like God speaking through his word. And so if we want to know what God has said and how God answers this, we need to study carefully the Bible. And that, I mean, but before anything else, guys, that's what we want to do. Every single one of these five points, as they're called, we want to say, does scripture lead us to that? Does scripture lead us to that? And I'm convinced it leads us to every single one of those five points clearly. And um, rightly understood. Rightly understood, yes. Uh, One more thing here is this, and I I really don't think in our church uh, this is going to be a major problem, but it's worth saying, I don't say this out of any sort of arrogance or anything like that, I just want to try to make this clear, and it's going with what you guys already said. This is just a challenge to your own conscience. I think sometimes we can be too dismissive, like you're saying, of debates like this, because it may not be a matter of salvation. Mm-hmm. And we, we treat it like, okay, we got the center bullseye on the dartboard is salvation issues like the Trinity and basic things, justification by faith, not by works. Those are non-negotiables we should be willing to die for, right? But then you, you move out and you have secondary issues, third level issues, and it keeps going, right? Like a, like a dartboard. I would say this is a second level issue. I, I put this right outside. I, put, I think it's a very important issue in the Christian life. Now, here's the challenge I want to say to all of us in our conscience. I'm not yelling at anybody. This goes to me as well. Are we willing to put more effort and energy into our finances than over a debate like this? Are we willing to put more effort and energy into figuring out uh, who's going to be on on the Georgia football team this fall versus this? Are are we we spending more time on ESPN than we are figuring out a discussion like this? Because I can guarantee you in eternity, this debate will matter far more than your favorite team this fall or whatever. So it's not that it's a salvation issue. It's not, but it guards the gospel, I think rightly understood. And I think it is a matter of secondary importance that the Bible teaches on many, many pages. And so it is worth the devotion of months of our lives coming back over and over, years of our lives, dedicating our best waking hours with coffee in hand. If you're a coffee drinker, Steve Krause, can I get an amen on the, on the coffee coming? You're holding coffee in your hand right now. 
<laughs> so get, de devoting some of the best hours of our, of our mental mm -hmm. effort to study and read really good books on this topic. Let me just recommend a short start here on this topic. If you don't know much about the issue, R.C. Sproul's book, What is Predestination? which I think Aaron Brown has, has recommended before. It's over on that table over there, and this looks just like it, but it's called What Does It Mean That God Is Sovereign? Also by Sproul. Uh, take one or both of these books over there on those tables, but uh, if, you're, if you want to be introduced to this topic from a biblical perspective. I agree with you what you're saying. And, and once again, it's important because it's true. It's important because it's life-changing. And that's what I think we wouldn't want to miss out on, you know, just how much this should change our life which God is exactly right. Just bring great and glorious praise to our Lord, which is what we want to do the rest of our life. Can I just say, yeah. in terms of that first question, does God choose me because he knew I was going to choose him? Well, no, because I never would. But John 3.19 is just one of the most, it's a very sad verse in the Bible. John 3.19 says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. I mean, it's the problem. We fundamentally, we love the darkness and we always would love the darkness. If God didn't sovereignly intervene, I would keep loving the darkness. The illustration, I still remember it. Dick Lucas, who was a pastor, I think he's still living. He may be in his 90s. He told this illustration in the Navy. He was on the ship coming in and there were some thieves trying to steal something on the dock right there. And the, and the spotlight came right on them and they raced away into the darkness. And that, what a picture. I mean, that's us. We do not want the light. I want my sin. Thank you very much. I did not want Jesus. Like I was bored by Jesus totally. And if God would have left me in that condition, I never, ever would have turned to him. No, because I love my sin too much. I mean, that's, that's the fundamental thing. And if we understand that, oh man, grace again becomes absolutely staggering. Uh, like Spurgeon, what is the Spurgeon quote about? Like, I would never have Chosen him, or do you remember how it goes? Yeah, God surely chose me before I was born because he never would have chosen me after. Yeah. He said, if you see my life after birth, well, I did a yeah. lot of bad things. He said, God would not have, it's not like God was looking at my promising future and made my, chose me. No, God saw how hopelessly lost I was. That's why he chose me. And this is sometimes called the doctrines of grace, and you see that it's lavished. I love that word. Don't you love what Greg read in Ephesians 1 there? It was lavished on us. And uh, otherwise, we're, we're without hope completely. Well, and this, this makes us pay attention to the Bible better. I mean, like, you, you can hover over texts and just kind of rush past them and, you know, think, oh, well, I understand what that. But you start to really dive into this issue, God's sovereignty and salvation, and you start to notice words like lavished his grace. Well, what does it mean that he lavished his grace? And you start to ask questions that you wouldn't have asked before. You start to get down into the text and you start to see connections between words and between phrases that you never paid attention to before. And like, that's one of the biggest most important things we can do in our study of the Bible is to not just race over the texts that we read. We want to stop. We want to linger. We want to get down in these texts and we want to get into the mindset of the text and we want to linger here and we want it to soak into us as we are, are lingering here. And as we do that, we start to see connections and it's those connections that start to open up the, the Bible's answer to this that, that, like we said, like Scott, you know, 319, like, okay, yeah, we, people love darkness, but you stop and you linger there. What does that say about us? In and of ourselves, we don't love God and can't love God and won't love God unless God does something in us. And the question is, when God does something in us, does he just make it possible for us to love him? Or does that work affect that love and I think the Bible is clear that it affects it. But you start, you, you linger on things you wouldn't linger on before. And studying an issue like this and other issues, even like the charismatic gifts issue, it will push us to know our Bibles like we never knew them before. 
because we start to say it actually matters what it says on this and how things are worded and how they're not worded. And that's why I say we check our assumptions at the text. We always want to check our assumptions at the text um, because the text will say things if we listen that we might never have thought it would actually be saying. Okay, just a, a quick word uh, about the historical background. I'm just going to stand up for a moment here uh, so I can point at the screen. Um, so obviously John Calvin's name has been most closely associated with the five points of Calvinism. Um, let me just be very clear. This does not mean we think John Calvin is some sort of pope of Protestantism or that he is infallible or that whatever he says we believe. He did not actually come up with the five points of Calvinism per se. Uh, so let's just look real quickly, and I'll, Greg can fill in some gaps, and I'm going to leave here. Uh, John Calvin uh, was one of the reformers with Luther in the 16th century, and he wrote some of the most important books in Christian history, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, his, his commentaries on the Bible. And uh, after Calvin, the guy who replaced him, is it Theodore Beza? Beza. Mm -hmm. He replaced Calvin after Calvin's death, and Jacob Arminius was one of his students. So Arminius was the student of the guy who replaced John Calvin. And he was trained by this guy for a while, and Arminius agreed with all those teachings originally. Mm -hmm. And then he left, and it was pastoring a more prominent church elsewhere, and he was going to debate someone else on these very issues, someone who, who believed the other side. And as he prepared for the debate, Jacob Arminius switched his position to the Arminian side, which is now named after him. So he, he, he took the other side. And then followers of Jacob Arminius, you can see he died in 1609. Soon after his death, there was a group called the Remonstrants, and they came up with the five points of Arminianism that were objecting to these five areas of Protestant or Calvinistic-type teaching from that time period. The, the very next year, you can imagine what happened. There was a counter-remonstrance, because of course there would be, and I, I would have joined them. <laughs> so they, they had the remonstrance, and then you had the counter-remonstrance in 1611. And a few years later, uh, a synod, a, a group, a council was, was gathered with a lot of prominent pastors at the time in the Dutch world, and uh, it's called the Canons of Dort from 1619. And they are the ones that actually come up with the five points of Calvinism. Now listen, and Greg, you were so good to point this out the other day to me. Uh, the five points of Calvinism does not summarize Protestant teaching or Reformed theology. It's simply the five areas of Reformed theology that were most controversial, and it caused a lot of people to object, like Jacob Arminius and his followers. They're just a small snapshot of a much larger view of Scripture and of God that comes from the Reformation period. So the Canons of Dort give a very wise response, and we would say a biblical response, to Arminianism with the five points of Calvinism, and it wasn't for another 300 years before the acronym TULIP showed up in 1913 to sort of summarize these five points basically as total depravity, unconditional election, I think the worst title here is limited atonement. We'll explain what we think that means. Irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints. Greg, some thoughts on that history there. Um, the, the big thing for me, because, you know, I'll have to weave some of my story on this in, is the five points of Calvinism, there wasn't like this reformed, you know, emphasis, this is who we are and how dare you ever disagree with us on these five points. And you got these poor, dis, you know, Arminians, everybody trying to, oh, we don't agree with those five points. No, the, the five points that are so controversial came about as a response to an objection to the Reformation teaching. Okay, like keep that in mind. That is so important because that's often just completely overlooked. The five points, the, you know, the, the scare word there, um, it was simply the, the dominant church at the time. They responded point by point to the Arminians. They were saying, okay, these are your objections. We're answering your objections, um, which is what anybody should do. Um, and so just keep the historical context in mind here. Uh, Arminianism was not the majority. 
Um, I mean, it, 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 it had gotten some popularity. They'd had some prominent teachers and, and influential people. Um, but it was not the majority at the time. It was, it was the minority that was trying to say, hey, look, we're reformed just like you. And he, I will say to the Arminians' credit, they did, they did try to stay rooted in Scripture. Um, they, they really did. Like they saw themselves as within the reformed tradition. Um, you know, we're just trying to teach what the Bible teaches. Uh, but I think convincingly, um, you know, the canons of Dort and others as well said, look, the, the objections you're raising, um, well, they can be answered because there's a better way to see what scripture's teaching. There, ju- there just is a better way. Um, and so the historical context was always lost uh, in all the debates that I had, like, you know, coming through college, especially, it was just like, you know, if you're a five-point Calvinist, you're the mean, scary boogeyman um, who's trying to enforce, you know, your, your mean God on people. And that's just not, not how it is. Um, and so whenever, whenever these debates come up, you know, keep in mind that real people are going to disagree on this. Um, but when these debates come up, go for humility don't, don't, act, don't be arrogant, but understand people are going to have a lot of preconceived notions about what you say. If you say you're a Calvinist, they're going to assume a lot about you. Um, and a lot of the, and I know we talk about the cage stage and there, there's definitely a warrant for when you get, uh, you know, get on board with this, you know, take a chill pill, if that's still allowable language, you know, chill out. Don't, don't feel like you got to convert the world in one day. Um, but I found a lot in my experience is I just wanted to have a discussion about it and people got mad because I wanted to talk about it. Like that, that was, that was my thing a lot. Like, and and I had people pick fights with me on this when I wasn't even trying to pick a fight with them and they would just start getting mad. Calvinists don't believe in evangelism. You don't believe in evangelism. You know, you're against sharing the gospel. I was like, where did that come from? I never said that. You've been like, these are people who had gone, seen me sharing the gospel with people, trying to get people to come to Jesus. And it's like, they just out of nowhere, you don't believe in sharing the gospel, this, that, and the other. Um, so can I just, yeah, to, go ahead. to that objection, because I think that's a pretty common objection, yeah. I, I think where that comes from is using uh, human logic that's not in the Bible. So if, if you believe in God's sovereign choice of, of who he saves, then the Bible says you should still share the gospel. You should still get, there's still, an, uh, the, Bible, the Bible is crystal clear of a universal offer of the gospel. So you, you can say to any image bearer of God, any human being on earth, you can say this. Jesus died in such a way that if you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, you will be forgiven right now. That is not inconsistent with anything we're going to say about God's sovereignty or election. So what people do is they say, if God chooses, then means don't matter, evangelism doesn't matter, missions don't matter. Now that sounds in a sense rational from one perspective, but it's not biblical because God uses the means to bring about his ends, which includes evangelism and missions and sharing the gospel. So people often will take part of the logic and then make a leap that's not in the Bible, and then they'll use that leap that's not something we believe. It's usually called hyper-Calvinism, which is a distortion of the doctrine, and they'll use that and then say, well, therefore you believe these things that are not true. And we just have to keep going back to scripture and saying, does the Bible command evangelism? Yes, it does. Uh, how will they hear unless someone is sent? 
How will they send unless there's, you know, how beautiful in the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news. So evangelism is essential in the gospel proclamation, and God is also sovereign in opening Lydia's heart to give heed to the message. So we want to, we want to be biblical. We don't want to be devoted to a system, but we do think the Bible teaches something that's in accord with, with this system of teaching. And you've talked a little bit about it wasn't too long ago where most Baptist churches would have thought this way. Yes. Right? Could you get, while we're on the history, could you kind of tell us? Yeah, 1800s. Yes, right. So, so uh, I mean, even here, Sarepta, the Athens, Georgia kind of Baptist hub was, was thoroughly reformed 100 years ago. You can go back and read about it in Baptist history. Tom Nettles has written a whole book. Uh, he used to be professor at Southern, I believe. Tom Nettles has written a big book, which I have not read, <laughs> uh, about uh, reformed theology and Southern Baptist life. And so you can read, there's hundreds of pages about the, 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 there's a lot of this in Southern Baptist history. It's fallen out of style in the 20th century, but I think it's coming back with a lot of the seminaries turning more in a reformed direction in the SBC. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I think just the, the testimony of reformed churches doesn't line up with the mischaracterizations that people have about reformed churches. Again, like, you know, the assumption is, well, if you're reformed, you've, you don't have any zeal for God, you're cold, you're, you don't evangelize, we know you probably don't pray either. And again, those are all mischaracterizations, and not everybody believes that, but that's a lot of the charges that are thrown. Um, and I think the consistent, um, the consistent testimony of a lot of churches has, has just completely disproven um, the misrepresentations and the mischaracterizations about Reformed churches. I mean, some of the most evangelistic, mission-minded people I know are Reformed. Um, and so if, if it's true that you can't be Reformed and like evangelistic, then how do we explain them? You can't. I mean, you go back historically, you got George Whitfield. He was a staunch, you know, Calvinist. Charles Spurgeon was. William Carey, the founder of the modern mission movement. Um, it was because of his belief in the doctrine of the election and the importance of preaching the gospel that the modern mission movement even got started. So the people who are all about missions, 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 and say, well, you can't be a Calvinist and be zealous about missions, somehow miss the fact that the missions movement started, was started by a Calvinist. Because he, Carrie, and this is important, guys, Carrie in England, William Carey, you know, he was told by, by like the church leaders, look, if God wants to save the heathen in other lands, you know, he'll, he'll save them and you don't need to worry about it. And Carrie's like, no, like the scripture says, I'm the way they hear the gospel to get saved. And so that's the first Baptist mission movement started because he realized we, we have an obligation to preach and they're not going to get saved if we don't preach. And so the, the, whole, the whole idea that Reformed theology and Calvinism is anti-missions is just a complete, you know, and I, I want to give the benefit of the doubt that people just say that in ignorance because they don't really know it, the position, but it, it's just not true. That charge doesn't stick. Um, so much of missions is driven by people who have a high view of the sovereignty of God. I mean, you think about it. If God's the one who saves, then yes, we can preach the gospel because we know God's going to save through the message we preach. If it's up to you and me, why preach? Why even pray for God to work? I mean, I remember Dr. Moeller saying something, you know, he, he had a discussion with, with another Southern Baptist guy who was not reformed, Paige Patterson, and Moeller was like, everybody's a Calvinist when it comes to praying for evangelism. And it was like, when, when you send somebody out to go share the gospel, you don't say, what, good luck? No, you say, we're going to pray that God will work. And if you're praying that God's going to work, then that means God is, is going to override and do things that are contrary to the free will, supposedly, of the people you're sharing with. If God doesn't violate or go against what we want, then none of us would ever be saved. 
Like you said, I, I love, you love darkness, we love darkness. None of us are going to choose differently unless God changes something in us to make us see something different about Christ. And so we pray when people share the gospel, God, open eyes, open hearts, lead people to your son. Why? Because that's what God does and that's how people come to faith. If it was totally up to us, why, why share? Why pray for God to work? Because it's not up to God. Mark, could you just hear that story? If you, I don't know, it's right, right off hand if you remember. The, the Carson story, you've told it before, with his dad and like the reason why he stays. Could you just, I mean, it's just a moving story every time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was just, I, was talking, I talk, mentioned Tom Carson to Micah this morning when we were driving here. Micah's like, who's Tom Carson? I was like, it's a long story. Uh, so, uh, but, but so Don Carson's father was uh, you know, an obscure, otherwise unknown pastor if it wasn't for his son in, in, uh, in Drummondville in Canada, if I'm even pronouncing that correctly. And uh, th- he was in Drummondville for some of the hardest years of his life at ministry. Uh, it makes me weep regularly when I go back and read about Drummondville, his time there. And it was a very dark, he called it the dark night of his soul is what Don called it. But... Um, he, he was experiencing extraordinary minimal fruit. I mean, he would have, would have not imagined having this many people in a room to hear Scripture talk in Drummondville. He had, on a big Sunday, 20 people in the room on, during the service, 20 people in, in largely French-speaking Canada. And uh, he would do, uh, you know, he would, he, would, he would wrestle with God in prayer and all this stuff. Well, one day, I've told this story before, he's, he's uh, with his son, Don. Don said, I was in high school. He said, I was I was, I was old enough to venture some interesting opinions straight to my dad without really being considerate of what he's going through. And so my dad is agonizing over the minimal fruit and minimal conversions despite doing like house-to-house evangelism. He's trying to convert Catholics largely to Protestantism, and it wasn't working very well. And so uh, some, some, some African missionaries had, had come from a civil war on kind of like a, almost like a forced furlough to Canada. And they had spent some time there, but most of them didn't last for more than six months. And so most of them had to leave Canada, assuming because of so little fruit, God must not have called us here. There's just nothing going on in Canada. And so Don, as a teenager, hears about this and says without really being emotionally sensitive to his dad, just kind of blurts out, uh, you know, his dad explained what had happened. He says, well, dad, why don't you go somewhere where there's more fruit forthcoming rather than staying here and producing so little? Now, can you imagine what that feels like from his dad? He said, up until that moment in the conversation, it had been courteous. But at that moment, my father turned toward me. He said he wheeled on me and said, I stay because I believe God has many people in this place. And guess what? He was quoting a verse on predestination from Acts Acts 18 when Paul was in Corinth and Paul was discouraged. Paul got discouraged, worried about being beat up and killed or shipped out of there. And he's there and Jesus appears to him and says, Paul, go on preaching and don't be silent for I have many in this city who are my people. He doesn't mean already converted. He means when you preach for the next 18 months, which Paul faithfully did, human means are essential. God ordains them and God works through them. And what happened? God saved a whole bunch of people in Corinth. That's why we got the Corinthian letters because there was a large church growing there. Well, how did that happen? It was the doctrine of election that kept Paul going. And then Tom Carson says back to Don, I'm staying here through thin. There's thick and thin. I'm I'm staying here through the time of famine. I'm waiting because toward the end of his life, there was a revival that broke out. Hundreds of Protestant churches were planted in a period of a short time. Right at the end, he kind of became the grand old man who trained younger pastors in that area. And he got to reap a little bit of the harvest at the end of his life. But he spent most of his prime years in the lean years. And what's what what kept him going? God has a sovereign plan for this city. He's going to save his elect, 
and I'm going to continue to be faithful as an instrument of God's means to bring about the salvation. And he had to wait years and years, but finally there, there, was, a, there was a harvest that came when he was old and his wife had just recently passed away. So th- this is an extraordinarily practical doctrine. It, it is a moving doctrine. It's a wonderful doctrine. And uh, what, what else, Jerry, can we... Motivating for sure. Go tell everybody because there's some people that God has chosen before the foundation of the world that will hear and put their hope in Christ. And it's freeing because it's not up to us to save anybody. We have no ability to do that. That has to be God. And so I know I've told my students so many times, it's like, oh man, if I didn't believe in the sovereignty of God in election, I would give up this Dr. Krauss. I would resign tomorrow because that would be so weighty. It would be up to me to have eighth graders come to love and know Christ. You know, I would have to be kind of conning them into it. No, no, God does that. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. We teach the word of God. We share the word of God, and then they're sanctified by truth. God's word is truth. And so that's the means that God's used. So it's so freeing and motivating, I think, at the same time. Let me add to that one thing. I think this is a big part of the discussion that gets overlooked. In America... Let's just be hard on ourselves here for a second. Generally speaking, we have a very low and unbiblical view of what conversion actually is. This is one of the reasons why I think the free will argument is so popular. If all you've got to do is get a bunch of second graders to pray the sinner's prayer, then who's not going to be an Arminian? It's so easy. You, just, you can go in there and just, okay, do you want to go to heaven with mommy and daddy? Or do you want to go to the scary dark place where all the sinners go? I'm going to go to heaven. Okay, Jesus, come into my heart. Come into my heart. I just saved 25 second graders. I mean, I'm not, yeah, I, I'm not, I don't want to be hard on anybody. I was with somebody not connected to this church a while back, and this guy, probably in his 50s, said that they had uh, a bunch of second graders come to their event, and they, they had 25 of them got saved that week. And I thought, I mean, I want to think that's great. I hope so. But, well, but if I'm being honest, I'm like, I don't think so. So, so what, what happens is we, we, we've, we've watered down conversion to a simple prayer. Repeat after mm-hmm. me at the end of the service. Come down the aisle. I'm gonna, the pastor prays with you. We sign it in your Bible. I got saved today. And then zero changes in your life. There are zero long-term changes. A love for the Bible does not develop, say, for this person. A, a love for the church doesn't develop. A love, nothing changes. They're just the same as they were two weeks before they got saved. Well, okay, in that view, the decision is such a small thing that it makes sense we, we're capable of doing it. But what if conversion is something you're not capable morally of doing apart from divine intervention? What if it's not simply a Jesus come into my heart and mean it? What, what if it is this? What if it is this? I love the wrong things. I am committed with the course of my life to the wrong pathway. My values are wrong. What I hate is the opposite of what I should, what I should love and vice versa. It's all mixed around. How in the world do you simply snap your fingers and change your affections? How do you change what you're devoted to? I mean, you try it. Like, go tell someone, just make a decision in the next 30 seconds to treasure the Bible more than football or whatever, right? Just just choose in the next 30 seconds, treasure Jesus more than your friends or your reputation. It doesn't work like that. You'll you'll try it and it won't work. Okay, I'm going to choose. What does that even look like? No, what you know needs to happen, and you know this from experience. If you know the Lord, you know this. What has to happen is God has to meet you. God has to intervene in your life. He's got to give new eyes to see beauty where it was boredom. He's got to give new ears to hear beautiful things from Christ that used to be mind-numbing. And that is not a simple act of the decisionary will. It's not not a simple choice that I make. My choices are a response to God's decisive sovereign intervention in my life, calling me sovereignly from death to life like Lazarus. Lazarus is rotting. 
stinking, right, as the sister says, and Jesus says, come forth, his word, his call wasn't a, hey, Lazarus, if you're feeling up to it, choose to come to life and come out of the grave. I mean, you could sit there all day. If I would have been, Lazarus, come out. It would not have worked. What, what's going to work? The word of God sovereignly creates what it commands. Come forth creates life. New life creates breath and lungs and heart that are working. Lazarus stands up. Of course, he comes out. He chose to come out. But do we see who was really sovereignly in control? Why did he come out? Because God brought him from death to life. So if conversion is something far more profound, it is, it is a resurrection of my heart from death to life, well, then that's something we're dependent on God to do. And until God does it, I'm going to continue loving the life that I've had up till now. Thank you very much. And that's why we sing in that song, All I Have is Christ. As I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. So that is a perfect description of God's sovereignty and salvation. I am using my free choice, thank you very much, to sin. I'm running my hell-bound race by choice. No one's forcing me to. I want my sin. Thank you very much. Stop telling me not to choose it. And as we run our hell-bound race, indifferent to the ultimate cost, God steps in. And God intervenes, and God brings conviction and new life and, and, and new desires, and there's a change of everything. And we can only say, thank you, Lord. We can't say, I'm so glad I made the right decision. We have to say, Lord, thank you for what you did for, for me. And that's probably described in one page further, if you're still in Ephesians 1, to go to Ephesians 2. And we'll look at these the next couple weeks, but Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and uh, Josh Cronick could talk on this for a month of Sundays. You are dead in your, trans your trespasses and sins. And whence you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sense of disobedience, along whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Do you see how many phrases describe us there before we're a believer? None of those are very fun to think about, but they are all perfect descriptions. And they, they that, all, Jerry, they all show our using our will. We were yes. walking, following, living, carrying out the desires. We were choosing what we wanted to choose, but it was all under sin. Yep. And as unbelievers, we can look at that verse, and that's looking in the mirror right there. That is who all of us were. And then look at it. This is so glorious. But God. I heard Papa talk about this. What two incredible words. But God, who did it? But God did it. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our, trans, our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And so it wasn't us. It's by grace. It's, it's undeserved favor that uh, God has showered on us, that he's lavished on us as we see in chapter 1. So Ephesians 1 and 2 are um, very convincing on uh, who we now are um, and who we once were. Keep, 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 we got to finish this, Jerry. Oh, I want to hear the rest. Yeah, it, just, it, it keeps getting better. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Immeasurable riches is what we have coming even to think about a glorious and inexpressible joy, increasing joy for all of eternity. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And that's just so huge. Let's not 
boast about it. Let's give God glory for it. And then verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. It's a glorious passage. And, and, uh, and Greg, I liked what you said earlier. When you study these and you think about them, they just get, they get better and better. And in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, is really everybody's testimony. If you know the Lord Jesus, I think you can kind of fill in the blanks and the years. And it's just, this walks you right through how one became a believer and what happens at. You're his workmanship created in advance to do good works. Again, look, thinking of looking at words, I want to focus on two in this text. Um, again, we don't want to rush past these things. We want to linger on them, and we're going to go quickly through this, but I hope it illustrates what, we get, what we're getting at. It says, first, but, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy. Okay, what is mercy? Um, you know, a, a common way of saying it is like it's, well, not getting what you deserve. Well, that's, that's not exactly right. When you look at how mercy is used in Scripture, it's actually pity for those who are helpless, those who have no means of their own, um, God, you, you take pity on them and you help them at the point of their need. That's why you hear of mercy ministries. You're helping the, you know, the less fortunate, those who don't have as much. That's where this comes from. And so mercy, if God is rich in mercy, think about it. that means he has a lot of pity and help for helpless people. What does it mean to be helpless? That means you can't help yourself. You know, God doesn't help those who help themselves uh, because we won't help ourselves. We can't. We are helpless in our deadness and in our sin. And so God, God has help uh, for helpless people. And he shows that why? Because of the great love with which he loved us. And so in this instance, mercy is going to be effective in whoever he shows it to. Okay, whoever he shows it to is gonna be effective. And so we can then tie the love of God as the motivation, a special love that God has for who? Everyone, if God shows this kind of mercy to everyone, everyone's gonna be saved. God doesn't show this mercy to everyone, but let's keep going. It says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, and again, like Lazarus, if we're dead, there's nothing we can do to change that. He made us alive together with Christ. And then he says, by grace, you have been saved. What does the word grace mean? It's undeserved, unearned favor from God. Meaning you didn't do anything that would move God to respond to you the way he has to save you. Even the whole foreseen faith. Well, there's some, that's something in us about us that is moving God to save us. And that's why we say, is faith come about, uh, does, does God choose us because he sees that we choose him or does he choose us so that we choose him? How we answer that is so important. In a text like this, if we understand that we are saved by grace, then we are not saved by something that we worked up, some kind of response ultimately that, that we gave. It's not that it originated with us. If grace, if it's undeserved, if it's unearned, if it's uncompelled favor from God, then the faith by which we believe can't come from us. It's gotta come from God. And notice the connection. If God shows grace, if God shows mercy, you will be saved. And so that's why we're going we're gonna to say this grace at some point, we're going to show even more that it's irresistible. It's not something that, that we can say, well, yeah, nah, no, thank you. When God shows grace in this way, it's like you said, it's resurrection, bringing the dead to life, like Lazarus. What are we going to do? We're going to obey the voice of our Savior in the gospel when he gives life to us. Yeah, so as we're coming to an end here for today, um, 
the next few weeks, we're going to begin to systematically walk through the T-U-L-I-P. And so there's going to be a whole lot of Scripture. The next, I mean, just, today, we, we, there were parts where we were just sort of telling stories and things like that about ourselves. But we're, we're, going to, we're going to work as thoroughly as we can through texts of Scripture to defend each point and try to explain what they mean. So I want to just say this. Uh, whether you're here or watching online and you're not totally persuaded, or maybe you believe some of it, but not all of it. You know, you believe this and that point, but not this and the other point. I, I would say, listen, we, we want to be as patient. I know we're passionate about this, but we want to be as patient and gracious as possible. Uh, if this is brand new to you, I just tell like John Piper, who's known for being reformed, he believes, he said there was eight points, he would believe all eight. That's what he said. He believes in the five, he'd believe in eight if there were eight. But Piper said he was in college when he first came to grips with this, is that it led him week after week in college, going to his Bible in the afternoon and weeping over his Bible because he felt like his whole view of God was changing. And it, it was not pleasant at first. He went through a difficult time adjusting to this, and he became persuaded it was true. And now he's just spent his adult ministry, obviously wrote a huge book on God's sovereignty. But so, so please, we want to be patient. If this is brand new to you, it's like you've never heard this before in your life, please stick with us through this series. It's going to be at least another 11 or 12 weeks, I'm, I'm guessing, and we're going to try to work systematically through each, each letter and, and uh, just test it with Scripture. Uh, j- just see, does Scripture really say consistently what, what these points are getting at? Scott, can you close us? Yeah, let's, let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, what a topic, what a glorious topic to consider, uh, your sovereignty over salvation. Uh, just uh, what a glorious uh, topic to talk about. We could spend so much time on it. Uh, Father, I do pray that it has produced just today, in these few minutes that we've talked about it, that it has produced a genuine desire to, to go to the sanctuary and to worship you, to praise you uh, with, with deep gratitude and thankfulness for your sovereignty over our salvation. I mean, there was a time when we loved darkness rather than the light. We loved our sin. We did not want Jesus. We had no delight in the Word of God. But for the believers in this room, there was a time when you came and said to our dead souls, live, and we lived. Our whole lives were radically changed and altered, and it's all because of your grace. We cannot boast at all, and so all glory be to Christ. We want to say and we want to sing with vigor, especially today after considering this topic, and uh, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.